Every now and then, I meet someone who's changing the world for the better by their sheer will alone. Whether they're authors, activists, or adventurous, these people are blazing a path with their deep enthusiasm and allowing the world to follow. Their passion is strong, and my passion is to tell their stories. I am Brian Platt, and this is Passion Project. Hey, what's going on, guys? So in this episode of the podcast, I speak with Life Cox of the Orangutan Project. We talk about a lot, starting with how he founded the Orangutan Project 22 years ago, what it's accomplished since, um, and kind of ending up on what's called like post-colonial debt trap diplomacy, which is where, I guess, developing countries uh, are ensnared by more developed countries who exploit them for their natural resources. Really fascinating topic. Um, Life is really has an incredible, you know, viewpoint on it, and you know, so brought up a lot of points that I didn't know, especially about Indonesia, which is where orangutans, the only place they live. Um, we also talk a lot about like why particular areas are protected traditionally throughout the world, um, what people can do to help, um, why there's no such thing as sustainable palm oil, and you know, how in order to make a difference in the world, you need both the heart and compassion, but also the knowledge of what you're doing. Um, so you kind of need, as he would put it, two wings of the same bird. But I really, really enjoyed this podcast. Um, I said it a couple times throughout, but I really think life should do like a meditation podcast because he's so grounded. He's so um, thoughtful and nuanced about his approaches and, and really refuses to believe in us versus them mentality, but likes to look at conservation in a more holistic approach. How can everyone benefit from it um, instead of just a few people uh, or a few companies and corporations? Um, and he's really, uh, he's really practical about it, which I think is a very refreshing uh, viewpoint, especially for me, who can sometimes be very, uh, you know, uh, pie in the sky at points. But anyways, as always, if you enjoy this podcast, please, please like, rate, review, subscribe. All of that stuff goes a very, very long way. And yeah, yeah, you know, if if you want to, as with a lot of these organizations I talk with, if you want to, you can always become a monthly sustainer or or even just a one-off donor for the Orangutan Project. Um, in this instance, we talk about it a little bit, but life does not really rely on a lot of corporations and really just kind of uh, relies more on the generosity of regular people, uh, kind of middle class people who have a little bit of means and, and funds to help and donate and support the cause. So if you like that, please feel free to do that. Anyways, I know you'll love this podcast. Well, I don't know. That was presumptuous. I hope you'll love this podcast episode. Um, I sure did. Um, yeah. And enjoy. Welcome life. I really appreciate your time. Oh, thanks. For, thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I kind of want to, uh, the more I was learning about you and the more I, I researched you in the organization, uh, the more curious I became. Can you talk a little bit about your career arc and how you got to this point where you are mm -hmm. with founding the uh, Orangutan Project? Yeah, I've working with 15 orangutans in captivity and discovered that they're persons, self-aware beings such as us, 
and didn't belong captivity. Um, and I also unfortunately quickly discovered that they were being driven to extinction um, as, as one of the most critically endangered species in the world. And that kind of set me on my journey to save the orangutans, their habitat, as well as all the other biodiversity and species and people who share their rainforest. Yeah, I like that. And uh, I want to talk about like specifics and numbers in a second. But um, so what what got you to to where you are? Like, how did you start the road in conservation? And then how did you kind of take the the path that you're on now helping orangutans? Because I understand you worked with, um, you know, uh, tigers and, and elephants and all mm-hmm. sorts of other things. You worked in zoos. Like, how was that? Mm-hmm. Uh, how did that get you to where you are today to say, you know, I guess it was 22 years ago, say, I'm going to found the, uh, the orangutan project. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's a, a, I guess, work in progress. Um, I guess parallel to um, my, my external life of, of conservation and whatever, there's, a, there's my internal life, my internal progress and development, mm. which, you know, which reflects their parallel with each other. And I always say, you know, in order to reform the world, we have to reform ourselves. So those journeys need to be parallel if they have um, uh, efficacy in, in creating meaningful change. And so for me, it's slowly developing, you know, and um, and one of the skills I, I learned and developed over the years is how to collectivize, how to work with others, how to partnership with others. Hmm. Because as individuals, humans are really quite pathetic you know and so you know we 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 can for our own gratification you know become vegan and or palm oil free or or have certain viewpoints but as individuals we're ineffective Hmm. we have to collectivize in order to achieve meaningful outcomes and so um my my life has been about trying to collectivize with like-minded people, you know, from the small organization we started to the large organization we're now with many partners, organization, many different diverse people. And the better we can work with others and collectivize, the more outcomes, meaningful outcomes we can have in the field. But more specifically, um, when we're talking about, let's say, what I'm doing now with tigers and elephants, as an example, is um, what we're trying to do is an expression of love and compassion for all living beings in an intelligent way according to our skills and knowledge. And so I've taken the orangutan as what we call an umbrella species, which means theoretically if you protect the orangutans and their habitat, then all the other species will come along for a free ride all the gibbons and monkeys and reptiles because they'll sit under the umbrella. Mm. But what we found, there was a couple of species slipping out from under the umbrella. Specifically, there were criminal gangs coming into the ecosystems, poaching targets for the illegal um, medicine trade. Mm. And there was elephants and people killing each other, you know, um, fighting over the last remaining habitat where they where the poor people and the elephants could live. And so we had to have specific outcomes, specific projects to bring, this case, the tigers and elephants under the umbrella of conservation. Hmm. And most importantly, recently, because we 
are developing agricultural systems under the rainforest canopy in the ecosystems we're working in with the local communities. We are bringing the human populations, the indigenous community, the local communities under the umbrella. We're feeding their, their, their children, we're educating. And so it's a win-win situation where we're creating a, a world that is suitable for all living beings, human and non-human, both at the micro scale, i.e. within these ecosystems, but also in the macro scale because conserving rainforest is lowest hanging fruit on achieving significant impacts on climate change. I like the way that you are immediately talking about including people uh, in, in, in all of the strategies you have. And I saw that on your, um, you know, your mission and vision within the website. Mm -hmm. But I find I talk to a lot of people with a lot of nonprofits, a lot of organizations for conservation, and the successful ones do just that. The successful ones mm -hmm. are the ones that don't um, try and conserve in an exclusionary fashion of kicking people out, uh, indigenous people in particular. Um, so I do appreciate that. And when you're talking, you're talking about Indonesia specifically. Mm -hmm. that, that, that's, that's where our work applies. But, right. the, but the concept is, is universal. You know, when we start to divide us against them and, you know, right against wrong and competition, we achieve short-term unsustainable outcomes. It's only through compassion and connection with all living beings, you know, um, we have the capacity to make the meaningful change to transition to a sustainable economy and a sustainable environment for future generations. So what, can you talk about the four can you talk about the four ways in which the orangutan project works to help both orangutans, their habitats, and also other species and people uh, within those mm -hmm. areas? And I think you kind of touched upon one or, or at least two of them. Mm -hmm. The idea is to, uh, our big picture is to save eight complete ecosystems of the right type, shape, and size of rainforest. Not all rainforests are created equal. For example, 80% of orangutans, tigers, and elephants live in degraded habitat outside of protected areas because the unprotected areas, which is degraded, is a lowland river rainforest, which is key to their survival. Oh, wow. So if, not, if you just say primary forest, they'll go extinct because primary forest is, tends to be remaining in the highland areas, which don't actually have much conservation value. And so we have to piece together ecosystems of the right type, shape and size that actually make sense. So you not only have to have the heart to save, let's say, the orangutans, and you have to have the intelligence and the knowledge to intelligently save it, or we can waste a lot of time and effort yeah. with no real impact. And so it's about legally protecting and securing habitat. It's about providing law enforcement um, with the local communities to protect the habitat from outside exploitation and influences. It's about um, rescuing and rehabilitating and looking after the individuals, whether they're orangutans and elephants, because there's two reasons for that. As individual persons, they have value in themselves. They're not insignificant. They're not um, to conservation. But also from a, a conservation point of view alone, if, we're not if we take welfare out of it, the populations of orangutans, elephants, and tigers are so small mm. that every individual is, and their genetics is 
key to the survival of the species. And so every individual is, is, is value in itself from a welfare point of view, but also is valuable for conservation. And lastly, is we're going to leave these ecosystems for future generations, not only as um, sustainable ecosystems to take all these species and communities through the extinction crisis, but economically sustainable mm. by developing agricultural systems under the rainforest where the communities actually prosper. Yeah? And there's enough money profit from those processes to support the ongoing security and maintenance of the ecosystem. So it's not the um, environment versus economy. It's about getting win-win situations where um, with maximum um, benefit to the maximum number of people and, of course, the animals. Yeah, yeah, because if, if people in that area don't benefit, why will they you know, be incentivized to actually help conserve some of these areas that we maybe as outsiders seem to, you know, think are very important. Uh, Yeah, no, I, I, that's true. But I I also see it from my perspective, slightly different. The, for example, in one of the areas of working this, we have these nomadic hunters and gatherers. And so, and their children are malnourished because as the big multinationals take their land away, they cannot find enough food and resources in the remaining area. Mm. We also have the um, indigenous community to do the slash and burn agriculture, where they cut down a bit of rainforest, burn it, plant crops. After three years, the crops start failing because the soil fertility reduces and they move on. But when they had all the land available to them, by the time they came back around, the forest was regenerated and the soil was restored. Uh-huh. So these communities, both hunter-gatherers and a slash remote agricultural communities, were sustainable. Wow. And so, and, but it's only because rights were um, recognised and they gave the land to multinationals to extract resources to the rich and powerful. Then they're suddenly going, well, we either starve in a death or we have to um, move into consuming future production doesn't make sense Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they have to move into unsustainable forms of um existence taken away from the future in order to exist today wow and so we come along and go gee we've only got this now land left we we design the ecosystems that we're trying to save that can be sustainable but we have to then with the community support them we can't have their children malnourished but then we have to support the community to develop agricultural systems which are now sustainable under the rainforest canopy you know, and move them from um, sustainable agriculture that can occur in relatively small ecosystems of about 200,000 hectares or more. Hmm. Interesting. That's There's a lot there. And I find that fascinating because whenever you hear slash and burn, you don't think that's sustainable. You don't think that that's a practice that could you know, has been going on for a lot longer than we know of and has actually been proven to be sustainable. Yeah, no, it's one of those dialogues. There's two, there's two um, I guess, misinformation, I think, from my point of view. Yeah. Is one is to say to all these people, your individual actions can make a meaningful change in the world. So just go back into, you know, recycling in your bin and that sort of stuff and <laughs> the world can be fine, you know? No. <laughs> Collectivize and make meaningful change. The second one is, is they characterize the poor 
Does that make sense? And the ignorant and uneducated as destroying the planet. Simply not the case. Um, yeah. When you look into the realities, it's big multinationals, yeah. billionaires, which are destroying the planet um, and, and demonizing the, the poor yeah, and, and the privileged is, is, is really disingenuous. Yeah, and it's almost a lot of audacity for us to... Um you know, maybe underdeveloped countries want to become developed as well. And they're, they might be following a path in which more developed countries have set forth. That path is not proven to be sustainable. Well, yeah, now, again, I, I, from my perspective, that's, is sometimes a misunderstanding of the situation. Hmm. Indonesia is a good example. And um, that's true for other countries. Indonesia was not colonized by country, another country. It was colonized by a company, the Dutch East Indies Company and, you know, and other companies. Wow. To exploit resources and wealth from the developing country back to the, the, the Western world. Hmm. And, uh, and, and then the government and the armies came to support the multinationals, the first multinationals, such as Dutch East India Company, the British East India Company, Jardines, etc., and so the whole system is set up for exploitation. Um, wow. And then and after World War II, of course, all these countries wanted to become independent. And they fought the independence, stopped, stopped the Indonesians becoming, just declaring independence and becoming independent after World War II. Because the trick is, is you say you can, you can be independent, but you have to be in, independent in debt. And service the debt, and that gives you the control hmm. to keep exploiting resources and control over the country. And of course, China is thinking, well, we're going to get into this game too. And they have what we call debt trap diplomacy, where they get these countries, third world countries, in debt, and then allow forces them to become under their jurisdiction rule and allow them to exploit resources cheaply out of it. So the whole model of where these countries are operating in for centuries now and continues on is of exploitation, you know? And so it's it's very easy for us to go, look, these silly countries, are, you know, don't know how to manage, they're uneducated and, you know, yeah. and they're exploiting resources like we do. But um, one of the Indonesian presidents, an example, said, look, at some in the 60s, said, look, I'm, I'm not going to have this anymore. I'm going to make these resources for the Indonesian people. Of course, there was a, a um, instigated by the the West a um, a military coup which killed over one million Indonesians and put in a you know, dictatorship in power to secure the resources and the money coming out. And so, from a geopolitical point of view, does that make sense? Mm. Is you know we we to look at the Indonesian governments and um, systems and processes and and look at it from the fact that you know they've got to get their act together <laughs> because somehow right. they don't know what they're doing it, it, it again is is um, missing the point is that you know they have been and remain under um, a lot of foreign influence which which has allowed the environment and their country to um, be exploited you you mentioned this is happening Today, this is still happening right now. You mentioned with China in particular. Um, whereabouts is this happening? 
Well, it, it, it's it's a it's a classic thing. It's happening. Well, it's continu continually happening. You know, if um, if you're in debt, you know, um, then you're you're in um, you're in debt to who you earn the money from. You know, so it's a bit like I mean, and China is 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 kind of the new player in the system. Although China's always had trade with, let's say, Indonesia, you know, for centuries, hmm. they didn't play a, a Role. So they've moved into what they call neo-colonialism, that post-colonial debt trap model, where they'll they'll go and say, we'll build dams and we'll build you ports, we'll build you roads and infrastructure. You can't afford it, don't worry, we'll, right. we'll, we'll send you the We'll money. finance it, yeah. yeah. But when you can't pay for it, yep. you, know, you say, well, we'll give us a port now, you know, or you give us a dam, or... In order to give you a break on that loan, well, you need to vote for us as in the UN. You're voting our way and that sort of stuff, you know. And or you're ne you need to allow our business, our business will knock down the forest and you know put a palm oil plantation. You you got to let us because if you don't, I'm not going to give you the break on the, the money you uh, um, lent us. So that's why they call it um, debt trap um, diplomacy, mm -hmm. which is which is basically the, the post-colonial system. That was put in a place to allow um, places like Indonesia to keep being exploited um, by multinationals. There's a book you might have read or maybe at least heard about called The Economic Hitman about how that this was like practice, uh, at least in South America, for a very long time with a lot of American corporations. Yeah, no, I, I haven't read the book, but it's, you know, the game plan is very consistent, you know. If <laughs> yeah. You, if you, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, okay, so I want to go back to something you said earlier. You were mentioning that the areas that should be protected, that are most important to orangutans, that are most important to other um, endangered species, aren't being protected. The highlands are. Why is that? Why is that um, mm -hmm. That kind of, like, flip-flop happened? Yeah. Um, because the environment always at the bottom of the list traditionally for any government. It, it, it's something that you know, is not a, a main priority. And so when they go along and do the plans, they go, where, where is the fertile soil? Where is the water? Where is the flat land, which is easy to put plantations on? So they go, okay, well, it makes sense. We'll make that the we designate as ag for agriculture. Now, the areas that are useless for agriculture or very difficult to exploit are the highlands. But also the other reason is you need to protect the highlands to secure the water sources for the agriculture in the lowlands. Yeah. And so, but no one who's actually delineating and making these land use plans um, either understands um, ecology or wildlife conservation or or cares right you know so what we ended up with is you know a, a um a a system where um co conservation of rainforest has very little to do with the conservation of ecosystems and wildlife Oof. this is bleak <laughs> i uh Okay, well, let's talk about because I do want to chat a little bit about like the populations themselves of orangutans. But like, what what successes in the past twenty two years has the orangutan project seen? How much protected land have you saved? How many um, 
orangutans have you been able to rehabilitate? And then also, how do you ensure that they don't wind they they don't then just wind up again in your facilities, um, whether it's through habitat loss or through um, you know poaching, if that's mm-hmm. a, a thing as well. Yeah, um, as I mentioned earlier, that we're trying to save these eight complete ecosystems, the right type, shape, and size of rainforest. And we're working with our um, partners in, in one example, Book at Tigapula, where we pieced together 200,000 hectare ecosystem, which includes a national park, um, land that we've leased as a, as a joint company, and land that we um, help protect with a joint foundation. And we piece this all together. And then we have um, other ecosystems which are in the process of doing this with local communities applying for the land. Um, starting and protection and, um, and supplying ranges to secure land which is valuable that is already legally protected so we're doing this in a in a hodgepodge you know mm-hmm. of, of, of methods all to achieve a specific aim or specific end um, tailoring what we do to be most efficiently to achieve the long-term outcome with a diverse range of partners that gets a bit complicated, but with the orangutans, and but and why why I don't make a um, apology for it being complicated? Because simple solutions are good for getting elected or or fooling people, you know. But the reality in in the world is very complex, you know. Right, and right. so simple answers do not affect meaningful change. Complex answers, you know, getting down to that granular detail affects meaningful change. And so every time someone gives you, this is just one solution, the simple solution, I'm normally extremely skeptical. But as far as the orangutans are concerned, um, you know, we have funded and supported the rescue of hundreds of orangutans. But when we um, um, support the release into an ecosystem, the first thing you always have to do is secure that ecosystem and provide the... I, um, we put into an ecosystem where the uh, orangutan population has virtually or completely gone extinct. And, th- and then, so you have to, first of all, eliminate the, the initial cause of extinction. Right. And then you have to then protect them. Yeah. And, and then you have to uh, monitor um, and evaluate. Yeah. And all those things have to be put in place. You know, so, you know, you, you could just, um, again, is you could just put some orangutans back into a wild population, um, which, caught, which causes problems with transfer diseases. It, if the population is often at capacity, so either your orangutan or another orangutan can die, has to die, because you can't, it can't hold any more orangutans, uh-huh. and there's no follow-up monitoring, etc. So you get a lot of dodgy stuff happening, you know, where mm-hmm. people, you know, make you know, support a lot of money and orangutan you know, goes off into the forest and everyone thinks it's wonderful and, you know, big high fives and moves off. Mm-hmm. But from a welfare point of view and a conservation point of view, there is no outcome. So there needs to be a hell of a lot that happens beforehand and during, you know, to make sure that the meaningful conservation is happening. And again, I would highlight that what I often say is, we not only have the heart and compassion to make a meaningful change, we have to have the other wing of the bird is the intelligence and the understanding to make sure that meaningful change is what we're, what uh, hearts are wanting out of compassion. Yeah, and that's probably the hardest part, right? I mean, there are 
probably a significant amount of people who say they want to help and can help and do indeed want to help. Um, but knowing exactly how to do it, especially with such a fractured ecosystem or with such an endangered species and a uh, set of species is probably the incredibly difficult part, especially since we're still learning about them. Mm. Yeah, you no, know, it's extremely, it's extremely difficult. And yeah, and so this is why, you know, um, you know, a vast majority of charity is wasted. Indiscriminate charity hmm. causes more problems than it creates, you know. So, um, and um, so we have to have um, an, an intelligent understanding and application, you know. And so um, there's nothing, I mean, I guess in some senses, well-meaning amateurs, if that makes sense, <laughs> you know, get involved because they, they want to make a difference and, and why not, you know. But it needs to be... But, but that doesn't matter if you have the um, capacity and desire to collectivize, you know? You don't need all the skills. If you're willing to collectivize and listen to understand and bring those skills and, and abilities within your framework, you can start off a well-meaning amateur with skills and things which simply don't apply, but your ability to collectivize and work with others, listen, you know, and develop, plans you know, with people who bring in different elements of knowledge right. will ensure your success and so um so we should never be worried that we don't contain all the skills right yeah, yeah. we would never humans don't survive like that we, we survive because you know that guy in the village knows how to do that that guy is good at that and i'm kind of good at this but not good at other things and that's how we have become the most successful species in the world so in other words lone wolves you know, or right, that right. sense, or big egos where you start um, extrapolating your knowledge in a particular area in all different fields. That's a dangerous part, which causes indiscriminate charity. Right. So, like everyone's got that specialty, uh, and sometimes your specialty could just be that you're a well-meaning amateur, but you're um, you're able to listen to the professionals, and you're able to to uh, to work together. All right. So there's hope for me. There's, exactly. There's um, again. It, it's about, and this is why the re reformation of the individual I feel is so important in this process, because the, if someone is unhappy inside, they need reputation, name, fame, money, and power to support themselves, mm -hmm. and therefore they can't get um, advice from others. You put on the guise of an expert, and therefore you can't listen to others. You can't learn. You can't admit you make a mistake, move on. You can't take other people's expertise. You know, um, you are worried about someone taking the power, fame, money, reputation from you. Yeah. And therefore, you 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 isolate and as an individual and can't affect meaningful change. But if you can give up all that and have you know have a joint happiness inside, and you can allow to empower other people support other people, respect other people's inputs, admit when you're wrong, change your viewpoint when the facts are changed. That way you can actually become effective. So people are competing against each other, trying to be successful, but they don't understand it's actually the opposite. The more we give up about our own individual um, position, the more successful we will be. I'm going to have to uh, get you to record a meditation podcast because uh, <laughs> that was very deep. Um, and I think it's true. I mean, I think at first you were describing maybe every politician ever, maybe some uh, current ones more than others. Uh, 
but yeah, getting to that next place is how we can help not only conservation efforts, but each other, uh, which seems it, to be the it, it, Exactly. And, and the beautiful part about adding the reformation of ourselves to our um, desire to, to make the world a better place is we actually become happier as we make the world happier. So there is no martyrdom or sacrifice. It's a win-win situation both for the individual and 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 the world and so and that's how i would categorize everything i do it's never a win-lose situation it's all the win-win situation <laughs> i love that so for like the uh so let's just talk like population numbers i'm sure it's probably pretty difficult to say oh there's exactly mm -hmm. this many but you know even just rough trends um mm -hmm. how are orangutan populations trending and we can even take COVID outside of this because i'm sure that probably throws a you know mm. a monkey wrench and everything but how are they uh, trending and then also like if we can break it down to because i understand there's there's multiple uh species and then subspecies and then the yeah. different locations and it definitely further complicates things so i'm wondering if we can kind of dive into that a little yeah. bit yeah uh, interesting enough you you, you said an initial point there um we looked um, we say we don't really know, and that's actually quite astute because when we talk about how many orangutans we've got of each species, people somehow assume we've gone and counted them all. Right. We haven't. We haven't seen any of those. In fact, they're so hard to see and find, um, we count nests and, and determine through a standard formula how that nest is broken down over time and what would that mean to how many orangutans there and extrapolate that on. So... These figures are surprisingly rubbery, but, you know, people want a figure to work on. Right. Um, so at best, the, 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 um, the good estimates, at worst, they're the, the, the guesstimates of what we got left. Gotcha. Um, but to give you the figures that is kind of universally accepted, you know, the best minds at work have put together these figures, about 50. Thousand um, Bornean orangutans, fourteen thousand Sumatran orangutans, and eight hundred Tapanuli orangutans. Those are the three subspecies. Wow. And just put it in context, um, we're losing maybe five, six thousand a year being killed, you know, on, on a regular basis. And that's why orangutans are classified by the International Union for Nature Conservation as critically endangered. So without immediate changes and immediate um, increased impact they will go extinct extremely and the first number you said was 15 you kind of cut off but you said 15,000 oh. 14,000 about 800 yeah there are 50,000 for the 50. morning they're okay. the most popular. yeah yeah um but interesting enough there's there's at least three subspecies of born in orangutan right and they're extremely different and so that isn't one big group that you can just save as a whole because for example the pongo pigmas morio which lives in the east coast uh, it is almost a completely different kind of animal than Pongo Pigmanis wormii, which lives in central Kalimantan. So with conservation, you also, one of the important things is you've got to know what you're saving and the details because um, you, 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 unless you know what you're saving, um, you may not be saving it. And that was a relatively recent discovery, right, that there were those three subspecies. Like before that, people thought, oh, you know, you know, we've got 50,000 of them. That's great. Those are great numbers. They can all uh, mate and they can all 
be happy. But then realizing, oh, that 50,000 is broken into three kind of was a more recent uh, uncover, right? Um, yeah, relatively recently. Um, yeah. And, but but what we're, we're learning continuously is how different they are. Oh, okay. You know? okay. And, um, yeah. And, um, but the, the most recent discovery is a tap on newly orangutan. Mm -hmm. um, so we're living in this wonderful era in, in the 21st century is where we can discover a new species of great ape. You know, they existed in this um, very um, rugged ter um, terrain south of Lake Toba. And it's amazing we can discover a new species of great ape in the 21st century. Irony on all the tragedy of it is it's almost, you know, this, with immediate action, it's doomed to extinction with people building dams and, you know, and, and a British company, um, you know, is, is gold mining their territory, uh. knocking it down to the gold mine. And so, and, and that's, you know, back to the, the previous one, the previous questions, the, um, the dam is part of the China's debt trap policy of building the dam and what it, you know, and it, we know it doesn't have any meaningful outcome for Indonesians to build this dam. Um, and the mine is, is, is basically the old English you know, money going back to the UK. Um, so you can see, you, you can see the old, um, the old economic paradigms uh, are just moved straight into um, drive to extinction. This, this new species of orangutan only recently discovered. How, how long as a whole, speaking broadly, I know this is tough to say, probably uh, still, but like how long do you think we have to save all species of orangutans in the wild or even just to make sure that their habitat isn't so fractured that they're just mm -hmm. gone completely? Yes. We've got 10 years to pull this off. Um, after that, there may be um, orangutans, but the populations will be too small to be viable because the way, where the ecosystem, uh, their, um, the way their mating system and their slow reproduction works, we need 2,000 in each population for that population. To okay. And so after that, we may have rainforest, but the rainforest will not be sustainable because you need rainforest to create rain and, and opportunities for rainforest to grow. And you need minimum sizes of orangutans. So afterwards, we may have rainforest orangutans, but the systems and the population will be unsustainable. And it's not without coincidence that climate scientists are telling us we've got 10 years as well. Ugh. And because there is a strong link between what's happening in orangutan habitat and global warming. So this is a time where if we're, if we're going to pull our finger out <laughs> and do something and make meaningful change, in some ways, this next decade is the most meaningful time in the history of humanity. No pressure. <laughs> I guess we've known that for a while, so we can't really complain. Um, so all this talk about population, uh, I guess it's hard to see where it's trending or how it's going, but... My wife and I just got back and just got back, but like before COVID. So in November, we got back from our honeymoon and our honeymoon, we went to Uganda and we saw the chimps uh, and we saw the gorillas and the gorillas are a really big success story. They're the only primates that are increasing in their numbers other, other than humans, right? Um, I am desperately trying to find out why, why Uganda... Um, the Congo and Rwanda in particular have really been able to, and I know you're a fan of ecotourism and I know you know that, it, you know, believe that it works and so do I, 
But why have certain countries or maybe certain um, species really been able to harness that? Um, whereas mm-hmm. orangutans that are just, you know, close relatives to gorillas and chimps, um, you know, it hasn't, it's been a little bit more slippery. Um, it just always fascinates me. Yeah. You, did you go see the mountain gorillas? Yeah. Yeah. We saw the mountain gorillas yeah. in, um, in Uganda. Uh, okay. Yeah. I mean, reflecting back on to our early conversation, the mountain gorillas, um, and therefore it, it hasn't had the, um, pressure from agriculture because it's a mountain area. Now, why gorillas can live in, the, in those mountains and orangutans can't is gorillas have decided a dip, a orangutan is looking for high concentrations of calories in these packets called fruit. That's how it survives. It can't just eat leaves and matter. R- gorillas have decided on the opposite set. We're just going to become big, lethargic, have big guts and, and fart a lot and just eat the vegetation around us, which means they could live in the highlands right. and, and survive. So they, they kind of, by their um, happenstance of their um, their evolution, wow. they just were in an area that was not under a lot of pressure. Um, wow. s- secondly, is when it comes to ecotourism, um, well, People see Africa far more in their consciousness. You know, if they want wildlife, they think Africa because that's right. where the documentary when we're a kid coming yep. from. Even though you know conservation in Asia is ten times more critical than conservation needs in in Africa. And 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 thirdly, is when you when we're watching orangutans, they live solitary lives. 40 meters in the air. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot harder to develop ecotourism to, um, to see these beautiful wild orangutans because they're harder to see and they, you know, they exist you know, in, in very small groups or as individuals. And so most of your ecotourism in, um, in let's say, Indonesia, Malaysia, is just exploitative. You know, it just these tourist traps where orangutans are fed in these feeding platforms, and and it's really actually very negative for welfare and conservation. Hmm. Where the gorillas, you know, living on the ground and in groups is your ideal situation, where your small groups can come and see them and, and get a really interactive experience. And so we're developing with our partner Orangutan Odyssey. We actually developed some really fantastic ecotourism experiences while the orangutan where you habituate with them and you go to oh. um, valleys and areas where they're in high concentrations um but so but in general um ecotourism is needs to, it's not going to be the um one solution which is going to mm-hmm. um, create an economic system to save orangutan it's going to be part of it an important part of it um but if we allow ecotourism to be the only source, it would just actually destroy the outcome. There'd be so many tourists and so unregulated that it will destroy right. its um, own end. So um, regulated and controlled ecotourism is, 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 an, is an important part of the mosaic of economic solutions with local communities, which is going to save the habitat. That's There's so many good points in that. And, and, Yes. So when we go, went to Uganda, um, we were almost guaranteed to see 
the mountain gorillas. And it wasn't, it was sincere. Like we saw them where they were. They were not crowd. They were not being fed, but there were, they were guides around these gorillas following them at all times of the day. And they were slow moving, right? So we would know exactly where they were. And we hiked probably about an hour. Um, mm-hmm. You know, sometimes it could be up to eight, but in this instance, it was just an hour. We saw them. They're all together. They didn't go anywhere. Um, uh, they were not in trees, right? So it, I could see how that's a very, um, you know, kind of sells itself, right? And then mm-hmm. the whole aspect of Africa is being uh, the land of conservation, right? Um, I lived in I lived in Thailand for two years, so I, I went to uh, mm-hmm. Indonesia a little bit. I didn't do I wasn't able to get to Borneo or Sumatra, um, but still, while there. Most of the conservation stories I heard about were from Africa, um, and sometimes oh. in some instances South America too. No, no, exactly. Um, even today, Indonesian children know more about African wildlife than their own. Right. And it's not that they don't have some really cool wildlife. They have tigers, elephants, and orangutans. And I, I remember one of my first trips to Sumatra. I was sitting next to an Indonesian businessman on the plane um, into Sumatra. And he said, oh, why, why are you coming? You know, and I said, look, I'm going to go um, to see the orangutans. And he said, look, I am from Sumatra. I'm Indonesian, lived here all my life. I'm telling you there's no orangutans in Sumatra. You're going to the wrong island, you know. Um, you know and he, was, he, he wasn't an idiot, you know. He was an educated right, man. Right. But they just, living in the city and that sort of stuff, they just didn't realise that there was actually orangutans literally you know, in a, in a short drive away. Right. Yeah. And I've, uh, so I just interviewed Nina Fasion of the, um, I think it's the International Rhino Foundation. Most people don't know. I mean, when they think of rhinos, where do you think? You think of Africa. Most people don't know that the most critically endangered rhino populations are in, well, in India, but also in uh, Indonesia as well. Oh, yeah. No, Indonesia, again, it's... Um, you know, Southeast Asia is a place where we need acts so immediately. Um, there's only maximum of 120 Sumatran rhinos left. They've recently just gone extinct in Borneo. And there's about six rhinos, you know. It's so on the edge, you know. Right. Um, and the populations are so um, so small that, the in, let's say, the females cannot find a mate in time before they get um, cysts in the ovaries, which, which makes them unable to reproduce for the rest of their life. Right. You know, we have these com- compounding factors when you get so such small populations, you know, and uh, you get this, this spiral effect that, that leads to extinction, even if you, you know, you can grab the individual and save them. Mm-hmm. The population is doomed because, you know, we haven't allowed for all the complexities. Um, which we keep keeping that population alive. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the biggest, um, well, from what I'm hearing, one of the biggest hurdles is, is awareness and interest uh, from the general public because it is fascinating. And people from Borneo should be excited about what they have that other parts of the world don't have. People from Sumatra should be stoked that they have these uh, incredible species that are are found nowhere else. Like, okay, so, I mean, this is a, uh, an audio podcast, but here is uh, <laughs> Uganda's uh, 50,000, I think, shillings, and they have the mountain gorillas on them. When we went to South Africa, 
They had the big five on all of their bills. They had a lot of pride in what they have. I think that's a huge step. Um, but I don't know how to get there. And then I don't know from there how to, how to derive that interest internationally as well. Um, cause like you're saying, it's two, it's two wings of the same bird, right? That first, that love <laughs> and that interest. If everyone had that love and that interest of nature and of wildlife, we'd be in a better place, arguably. Um, we all wouldn't need that, that, uh, that really depth, in depth, really nuanced knowledge that few of us have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we, we need that love and passion and knowledge, but we also need that to be expressed by the people with power, or we need to lengthen, yeah. Yeah, make sense, broaden the power. Yeah. Because I know um, I often get, you know, we should be educating these local communities, you know, to about their environment and all this sort of stuff you know and so the idea is that these poor uneducated stupid people are are, you know destroying the environment because you know they're uneducated we educate them it's not going to be the problem but that's not the problem right they're extremely smart they're more educated knowledgeable about their environment than we will ever be the main trouble is they have no power you know and so you can educate them all they like to about conserving the forest but when a big company comes to cut down the trees you know, they, they're just probably just a little bit more annoyed by it now because they know a little bit more, more in depth about why the trees should have, should have stayed. So, yeah. So, you know, we need, um, you know, education without um, genuine democracy doesn't make sense. You know, democratizing the, uh, the economics of these ecosystems is not going to achieve the outcome that we need. How. Okay, so how do you feel? Well, I was going to ask how you feel about that. But but before that, I want to kind of touch upon something that I just, that you just reminded me of. So uh, a friend of mine, like, is about as into conservation as I am. Um, his name's Justin, and he's always like, you know, he's been to he's been to Indonesia. He's been to a lot of the places you're talking to. He's been to a um, orangutan sanctuary. Um However, we were looking and trying to find the sanctuary in Google Maps, and we saw a lot of a lot of green, and it made us hopeful, right? Because we thought that a lot of these um, forests were being taken down; these these rainforests were being taken down. However, once we zoomed in, those green trees were in perfect little rows and perfect little columns, and we realized <laughs> that they were most likely palm oil plants, um, yeah. or or plantations rather. Um, I know it's tough to talk about, you know, it's tough to just get those numbers for uh, how orangutans populations have been. How has habitat loss been? And I'll brace myself for uh, a potentially pretty startling answer. Well, the habitat loss is, is, has been devastating because it's not only the vast majority of the rainforest is now gone and it's been replaced by unsustainable forms of monoculture, such as palm oil. Um, they, they've taken the, the best land, you know, and the land which is often needed. So we, we, we've gone past the point of what I call is passive conservation, where we just say, hey, stop here, and we defend these borders and these ecosystems will save. All the ecosystems do require some reforestation, some restoring of some river run for us in order for them to be sustainable because they're not sustainable anymore. 
they need some active assistance and active expansion in in, in order to survive. Hmm. And of course, all these, all monocultures um, are unsustainable by their very nature. Right. Sure. So, so when someone talks about sustainable palm oil, you they're, they're not using the word sustainable as the common person would believe it to be, um, because all monocultures, and palm oil as an example, will collapse in 50, 60 years' time, leaving a wasteland um, in, in its track. So it's only these monocultures, and this is just not about palm oil, but any monoculture, whether in America or England or anywhere else. It's about taking profit from the many to the few, from the long term to the short term. So it's just exploitative um, economics, you know. Um, and so we, what we want is economics that... Um, benefit many and can benefit future generations how okay i'll jump into it like how i get the feeling that you're are you positive i get the feeling that like oftentimes i wear rose-colored glasses i get the feeling that you're you think about it a lot more in depth and nuance than i do uh, i feel like you're on the front lines like how do you feel are you positive about the future um uh, do you think we're we've got the ability to to turn things around at all we, we can we can okay yeah, we, we we can turn this around we've got 10 years to do this and um you know and it's you know we've estimated to with our partners we need to contribute 20 million dollars a year for 10 years to set up these ecosystems to um survive both environmentally and economically and and, and allow the whole planet to be recoverable by future generations rather than, you know, a spiral into uh, oblivion. And so, and that obviously, you know, f um, for me, $20 million a year is a hell of a lot of money, you know. Um, but, you know, you know, $20 million a year is is wasted or dismissed or, or insignificant for so many people and so many organizations, you know. Mm -hmm. And so... It's, it's certainly it's certainly possible if we intelligently apply you know you know relatively minimum resources you know mm. from the global perspective you know so it so from an economic point of view and a timeline point of view it, it's, it's very achievable okay yeah. um, but the problem is is you know um, the, you know the money is not available <laughs> the money goes into exploitative ec economics you know and even when we're Going through the COVID nineteen crisis, you know, um, half the population is talking about a green recovery. This is a time we shut down. We can build a fairer, greener world, you know, yeah. um, and in renewables, um, um, polyculture and permaculture, you know, all the things that we need to do. Why don't we take the opportunity now? We, you know, to reset the way we're we're going. But then you see the um the old neoliberal you know are, are moving and destroying um, um environmental protection destroying labor laws doesn't make sense doubling down on the old exploitative practices you know hmm. under the guise of economic recovery right sure. so we're, we're so we're in this kind of crucial stage you know where the, do we allow the um the madmen <laughs> you know of, you know um you know to keep on doubling down you know um and when I'm talking about mad, I'm not talking about them necessarily being evil people. 
um, or, or mad in, in, in a psychological sense is the cognitive dissonance. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because if you share, have privilege, um, which is unmerited, you, psychologically you have to um, demonize the unprivileged and the poor. Does that make sense? In order for you, if you're essentially a good person, we're all good people, in order to support our sense of self-worth. So from their point of view, they look at, you know, um, people who want a green recovery or, you know, that makes sense. So and in more simple solutions, they see them as as horrible rat bags, you know, right, <laughs> who, right. Who, who, who are a threat and, and, and are treated as such. Um, it's unfortunately part of our human condition that we um, we have to overcome. Interesting. Yeah, I think you're right. Like, I I refuse to believe that there are good people and and bad people. I don't even know if that's kind of a term in which I want to use. But I just think it's different, different priorities and maybe priorities that are malaligned with my own, right? Like you're, you're mentioning there are people in organizations that are prioritizing the economics right now, whereas there's others that might have a little bit of a longer view about it. And that's how I, it's hard, it's not easy, (laughs) but that's how I try and view things because otherwise you're gonna be miserable and you're gonna feel like there's no, there's no hope. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, Demonizing others, you know, um, is is not the way to go, you know, and and cognitive dissonance and willful blindness um, and the, the, the desire to see your leader as right and believing in the narrative of the tribe and the leader is ingrained in our tribal yeah. brain, you know? And, and so, you know, we, 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 and we all suffer from that and we need to have that uh, impersonal inter- internal growth to see the, the, um, the foolishness of our, our own beliefs and own sets of values and question them, you know? Um, and that, that's, that's a lot of progress, you know, um, that, that we, we need to do internally. So to be arrogant enough to look at people in opposition to you with different viewpoints and see them as less intelligent or less of a caring person, I don't think is right. I, I think, and, and it creates this us and paradigm which continues a problem instead of looking for win-win solutions and listening to people and giving them space, does it make sense? That demonize them to allow them to come on board, to, to build a, a better solution for everybody. Yeah, I don't know if that us versus them mentality, I don't, it would be interesting to know what that us versus them mentality has ever gotten us, uh, other than oh, a yeah. really great Pink Floyd song. I don't think it's gotten us <laughs> anything at all. Well, look, it, 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 it it, it's, it's worked really well for the us for a long time because what we what the, the idea was that's true is the world was such a big place that we couldn't really have an effect on it and exploiting the old co- colonies like Indonesia and Africa that didn't matter because it was outside of our world you know so it was us and them and that worked and you know and, and and the us prospered and the and the them was kept down and, but at the it's come to the stage where our ability doesn't make sense and our reach is global, you know? So unless we can expand our consciousness and love to include all living beings and persons that share a planet, we're dooming ourselves. We've got to the stage where it, it's, 
it's no longer even a viable strategy for us, <laughs> you know? Yeah, uh, yeah. Us have to in, bring them into it in order for us to survive. So whether you're selfish or altruistic, the, the, the solution now has to be the same. Have, have you had to, uh, and this is kind of an aside, have you had to work on this mentality have you always been this way where you realize that there's the us versus them, but you're not blaming? Because I feel like a lot of people, a lot of issues with conservation and conservationists is blaming and saying, oh, you guys are so stupid. You don't realize this. I've done that too. I'm still guilty of that, of course. But I realize that it gets you nowhere. And it's really, exactly. you just are kind of a pain in the ass, even to people who agree with you. You know, it, yeah. Exactly. And the reason why it's so attractive and we do it is, let's say if I, if I don't feel good about myself, I actually enjoy criticizing or showing my, my superior knowledge hmm. because during that point, I presented myself as somehow superior and feel good about myself. You know, these horrible people, right. this and this, and, and the, the, what the, the, is, well, the implication is I'm better and I'm good and that sort of stuff. Um, but it, it, it's, it's totally destructive mm -hmm. because, you know, um, in, in what we're trying to achieve, but where, if you actually feel happy and, and, and fulfilled within yourself and confident within yourself, you then have the ability, you know, to listen, you have the ability to understand other people. Um, and if you understand somebody, you're more likely to convince them because people will listen to you if you listen to them first. And if you understand where they're coming from with empathy, because intelligence is not enough. You need intelligence, empathy to get inside somebody's mind. And then you can talk their language. You can explain things in a non-confrontating way, which they understand. And that's the way we change minds and make things better. So, um, you know, I'm a vegan myself, but, you know, the old yeah. vegan jokes, you know, <laughs> you know, you know, you know um, you know, um, that, you know, we, we always feel so superior about other people. Right, you know, exactly. You know, and, you know. and, uh, and of course, that is why, you know, I mean, you know, if you're a meat eater, you have to stay in there. You have, you know, this, this guy's making you feel bad about yourself. So you have to double down, you know what I mean? On, on um, you, you're not, you're not given that space by the vegan, doesn't make sense. To, right. To allow yourself to comfortably, doesn't make sense, change your mind without fear of, your sense of self-worth being diminished yeah you, you you're on the defensive you feel like you're being attacked and i feel like that's exactly. a terrible way and, and we have that you know I, I don't i'm not too versed in australian politics but also we have that going on in america right now where we're demonizing a certain group and and again it might not be a group i agree with but all i'm gonna say is it's different it's different values and and what do i know to say that they're wrong or they're right um, th the best I can do is come at it with a little bit of understanding or at least give a little bit of grace to all parties involved. Mm -hmm. That's the way I think about it. Man, I see that guitar in the background. I don't know if you're uh, like, you know, I don't know if the Grateful Dead is down in Australia, but we have to go to see, <laughs> a, go see a show and play some music and talk about this for a while because I do. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 oh, I do know the Grateful Dead. Yeah. Um, but the, it, it's actually interesting. Um, it was quite late that, uh, that I started listening to the Grateful Dead. Reason being is, um, <laughs> we see, 
I used to hear about you know cultural reference to the Grateful Dead on American TV programs and movies, but we go, who are they? Because oh. I think they never toured outside of America. They're the so best, it's, yeah. Uh, uniquely North American phenomenon. Um, so a lot of us have, have, have um, got onto them quite late. All right. Well, I'll I'll send you some videos because uh, yeah, they're they're they preach kind of exactly what we're talking about. So yeah. Um. Well, cool. So you know, I'm curious. Like, how can people help? Like, I don't. How can people help the orangutans, the habitats? How can people help the orangutan project? I don't imagine you have a lot of corporate partners. I imagine. You know, you, you, I could be wrong, but I imagine, you know, you, you probably rely on the support of individuals or maybe governments. Um, so how, how can people help both either just with their, their purchases that they make on a daily basis and also with, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just directly helping the organization? Yeah, no, I mean, governments is very little. Um, okay. Actually, we do get some help from the U.S. government for our elephant programs. But that's actually been put on hold because of, um, I guess, your president's not very keen on conservation at the moment. And so yeah. they're not allowed to um, save elephants at this time. But um, hopefully that might change in a few weeks. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so, and companies, no, because companies mostly, you can get money real quickly from exploitative country, uh, companies that want to greenwash, you know. Um, but obviously, you can get money for your pet project, but you destroy more than you save. So that's not a, a good long-term solution. Um, other companies want to use you as a um, a marketing exercise. Um, sure. So you spend more time supporting their marketing program than you, you will get for conservation because it's actually just cheap advertising. There is a third group, though, um, of corporates and I actually consider them corporate donors, we, although we have corporations who give to us. But it's really about the the management team or the CEO individuals actually having the conservation um, desire, you know, an outcome, and just use their company and, and the philosophy of the company as a vehicle. Doesn't make sense hmm. to give money. Um, so they're really, you know, good people, you know. Uh, with you know in companies and, and processes which are used in a company to make a meaningful change in the world and and, and we we have a few um, um you know good supporters like that but the vast majority of our income comes from um yeah small donors um small regular givers and and um and and um and um large major givers and um and one of the problems we're having at the moment is, is, a, is a reduction of income because what we find is the poor don't give because, hey, they've got to feed themselves and want to get evicted. Fair enough, you know. Um, um, the rich don't give because they they have a paradigm, doesn't make sense, which, you know, because of cognitive dissonance, which mostly, and of course, there's a few fantastic notable receptions of rich people who, do, you know, do have that personal development and, um, um social conscience you know mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. but most of them don't so as, as a group they're, they're very poor from fundraising it's really the middle class you know oh, wow. educated you know middle class um you know who understand the issues understands the importance that they don't have to worry about where the next meal is coming from but they're not personally their personal sense of self-worth is not invested in the exploitative economies of today 
and those are the people who give to us. So with crises such as COVID-19, we're there under pressure. You know, it naturally puts us under pressure, which is ironic because at the same time, we're seeing the local people who have lost all their jobs and income in, let's say, Indonesia are having to go destroy the forest or go poaching in order to, to keep their incomes coming. So we, we got double the problem and half the money. And so, you know, we have these kind of ironic um, catch-22 situations. So I guess the answer is, you know, how to support orangutan conservation and the orangutan project if you become a donor, you know, if you do have the means to become a major donor, if you have a modest means become a small regular giver to keep that money going in the field, you know, and keeps things um, happening um, and, and ticking along. And, of course, once we get out of this, you know, of course, we'd love to see you in, in the rainforest. And I take people on guided echo tours um, into the forest to see the orangutans, meet the real people doing real conservation in the field. And I do um, talks every night, you know, um, taking people through different aspects of conservation, you know, both from the philosophical to the practical and on the ground as they experience it in the jungle. Well, I will 100% be there uh, when everything starts to open up. What about with, um, you know, let's say small to large purchases when people do on a daily basis? Uh, things like avoiding palm oil, does that help? Is there, like you mentioned earlier, hey, there's no such thing as sustainable palm oil. I mean, it's more sustainable than unsustainable, but it's really not a thing. Like, what kind of things should consumers be on the lookout for? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we have to, um, well, being palm oil free is, is a good idea. Yeah. Um, the most important thing you can do globally is to become a vegan. You know, Absolutely. Because, you know, um, animal agriculture is one of the biggest destroyers of our, our planet. Um, and, you know, and the usual things are recycling and that sort of stuff. And I think we all need to do that, you know, um, for personal integrity, you know. Um, but it's not going to save the planet. It's mm -hmm. not, you know, as we, I talked about earlier, it, as an individual, we have individual responsibility to how we interact with the world. Um, but we also have a individual responsibility during this um, crisis, this most important period in human history, to collectivise in order to um, make the meaningful changes we need to in time. And the Orangutan Project um, is one collectivization mm -hmm. that we that we offer. You know, so people you know, from the local Indonesians to, um, you know, people in America who, who want to just give a regular gift, you know, can collectivize their skills and experience and resources that we can together make the meaningful change that is required. Hmm. Gotcha. And that makes sense. I, I want to thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Um, I know you've got a lot of uh, important work to do, but yeah, thank you so much for talking about uh, the orangutan projects, uh, the orangutan project, excuse me, how people can help. Um, and yeah, the, the incredible work you're doing. So thank you again. I really appreciate this. You're most welcome. Bye. Thanks for joining. If you liked that episode, feel free to rate, view, and subscribe. That actually really helps. If you haven't seen it yet, take a look at the accompanying blog. Don't forget your boots.com, where you can read more and see photos for all the interviews. Until next time. Take care.